Okay, so we'll go on, even though it's just, even though it's just the few of us. Um, so, going back to that word "thus" at the beginning of stanza two. Um, in a sense, the question we've been asking, and now I think we'll actually be able to go faster. Um, because we set the question out. I think. We'll see. Um, but the question we've been asking is, um, which is the master, the mind, or the universe? Um, they're clearly different, which is important. That is, there's the first two lines um, tell you um, the two domains that the poem's about, the everlasting universe of things, and the mind. And those two domains then get um, described as the two streams or rivers, one a tributary to the other, um, one a landscape for the other, um, one a landscape which contains a river and the other a river. Um, but you don't have to worry too much about the um, asymmetry between the idea of a landscape on the one containing a river on the one hand, and then on the other hand, a different river. Um, what just matters is there's that distinction. Really, the distinction that matters is the distinction, the dualistic dis distinction between mind and world. Um, everyone sees that, right? That's that's um, as clear as clear can be, I think. Um, and Shelley's going to have a lot of images for that dualistic distinction. Uh, we're about to hear about. Um, one legion of wild thoughts. So those are thoughts that fly through a landscape. Um, so if, they, if in stanza one, the universe of things flows through the mind, what we're going to see in stanza two is that a legion of wild thoughts, like a flock of birds on high, um, that's thought flying through a world, through an outside world. But there's always, in one way or another, however the imagery changes, there's going to be a distinction between the mind and the world. Um, and one is going to contain the other. Um, again, to go back to the Dickinson poem, the brain is wider than the sky. Um, for hold them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease and you beside. Um, and generally, we'd say that the sky, the external world, can contain both me and you both my brain and you outside of me. But what Dickinson means by that is, no, in my perception, I can see the sky, and there's still room for you. Um, I can perceive both those things. So one contains the other, and the question is, as we were saying yesterday, which is to be master? Um, that question, and this is the important point, and after that, I think it's, um, uh, I hope we can move more quickly. Um, in the poem comes out as a question about what the subject of the poem is. So the question is, is the subject of the poem, well, let me ask this as a question since I say it's a question. What's the subject of the poem? What are the two possible subjects of the poem? Yeah, Isabel. Um, the um, Mont Blanc or the mind. Right, Mont Blanc or the mind. So is this a poem, um, again, like in a station at the Metro, is this a poem 
about a mountain and then it's being compared to the mind that is to say you want to know what this landscape looks like um, it looks kind of um, like something we're somewhat more familiar with which is the mind um, or is it you want to know what the mind looks like well look at this mountain um, it's that tenor vehicle thing that we talked about before and the question is what is the subject of the poem and what is a metaphor or simile for that subject and the idea would be in some ultimate way that the subject is what gets privileged what really matters is talking about the mind and Mont Blanc gives you a good image of what really matters namely the human mind or what unfortunately or maybe fortunately really matters is the absolute transcending sublimity of the natural world and what's our only way of understanding how transcending it is well it's by looking at the mind and what in this mountain goes beyond anything the mind can do on its own so one is the subject and the other is the exposition of the subject you could say that's what tenor and vehicles are the tenor is the subject of a metaphor the vehicle is the exposition of that subject um, if I say my love is a rose which is um, uh, a variation on Burns's famous line my love is like a red red rose that's newly sprung in June but if I say that my love is a rose um, I could mean, um, or, if, or if Gertrude Stein says rose is a rose, um, I could mean um, that what really counts to me is my love, and the best image of my love is a rose. Or I could be a gardener and say I'm done with human beings. I've given up on human relations. Humans are just too disappointing and cruel now what I love are roses um, and in that case I'd still be saying I'd still be talking about love but I'd be saying something like I've given up human love um, and now I have this other kind of love for a rose but the rose is what really matters there's a poem by Frost um, a nice little poem by Frost um, people know that Gertrude Stein line that is often misquoted as a rose is a rose is a rose you've never heard that Okay, so it's, if, it, the misquotation is a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. Um, and Hemingway, her ex-friend, parodied it as a rose is a rose is an onion. Um, but in fact, it's from a little book of Gertrude Stein's called um, The World is Round a Love Story. And the main character of that book is named Rose, and Rose goes to a tree and carves onto the tree in a circle around it. Rose is a rose, is a rose, is a rose. Um, but it always gets misquoted as a rose, is a rose, is a rose, is a rose. So that's just for information. Um, but um, um, it all ultimately goes back to Shakespeare. Um, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Um, which then kind of gets remembered as a rose is a rose. doesn't matter what name it has. Um, so Frost has a poem which goes, a rose is a rose, 
and the process of poem, which is based a little bit on modern um, biological taxonomy. Any of you majoring or double majoring in bio? Neuroscience. Neuroscience. Um, okay, not quite the same, but yeah, there's the there's the uh, um, brain. Um, there there is a botanical word for the whole brainstem. Um, medulla oblongata and so on. It's some kind of flower. Um, at any rate, um, so modern taxonomy, which has demonstrated the um, uh, genetic kinship of various kinds of things that um, people didn't realize were such close kin. Um, and Frost is interested in this. So the poem goes, a rose is a rose and was always a rose. But the theory now goes that an apple's a rose, and a pear is, and so's a plum, I suppose. The Lord only knows what will next prove a rose. You, of course, are a rose, but you were always a rose. So there you can find, feel a really nice uh, modulation of literal and metaphorical. Um, a pear, an apple, a plum, they are actually part of the rose family. Um, but that's literally true, and therefore of less interest than the metaphorical truth that you are a rose, but you were always a rose. So just like a rose, you were always a rose. Whereas apple, pear, and plum, that's just modern theory. That's modern literalism. Um, okay, so that interplay of the literal and the figurative, that's always going to be interesting in poetry. Um, not knowing whether something is literal and figurative, not knowing how literal it is or how figurative it is, not knowing if there's a continuity between the literal and the figurative, the literal and the metaphorical, or not. Um, whether there are metaphors, we defined a metaphor early on in this course as something that's always false. Um, and that's what makes it a metaphor. If it's not false, it's not a metaphor. Um, but we can also say there are metaphors that um, are false but verge on truth. And that would mean that, they, that it's something like saying an apple's a rose. Um, you can imagine a metaphorical meaning of an apple's a rose, which is something like um, when Eve picked the apple from the tree in the Garden of Eden, what she did really was to pick a flower that as soon as it picked would start wilting and dying. And that would be a metaphorical use of the idea that an apple's a rose. Um, it would be purely metaphorical, but you could see how um, there's also a literal meaning to that idea, the modern scientific meaning. The metaphorical and the literal meaning wouldn't be the same. But there would nevertheless be some comparison because roses are picked and apples are picked. Because roses are flowers and apples flower before the fruit comes out. Um, because they're both botanical, they're both plants. Um, so those, are, those could be metaphor. You could see that as a metaphor that's false. An apple isn't a rose in that metaphorical sense. But it's kind of close. Whereas if you were to say um, that um, death the apple is death, which is what Milton says, um, that what Eve picked off the tree was death. Um, that's a much harder stretch, much more literally false. She didn't. She picked a fruit. 
Um, we have no trouble understanding what it means to say that she picked death. Um, but it's not literally true. She didn't. Um, But that she did pick death. Yeah. Nice. Is that what you were about to say? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a great moment in A Dance to the Music of Time, the seven-volume novel, where early on when these kids are in school, one says of this other pompous fool, he'll be the death of me. Um, and then two volumes later, it turns out to be true. Um, and so there's always something interesting with the literal and the metaphorical um, get mixed up like that. It happens in prophecies. No man of woman born um, shall harm Macbeth. Um, Macbeth thinks that's a metaphor, but he's wrong. Um, and because he thinks it's a metaphor, that is, he thinks that um, every man is born of woman, and therefore no man of woman born is just a metaphor for no man, um, he's wrong. Um, and that's the death of him as well. Um, so the difference between metaphorical and literal meaning matters. Okay, so Mont Blanc is one of um, an extremely large number of poems that's about um, the interrelation between the metaphorical and the literal. Again, let me just back up to say one, one other thing. This is the theory part of this class for which you get theory credit in the English major. Um, to say that all metaphors are false doesn't mean that all metaphors are equal. In logic, as you probably know, anything follows from a false statement. That's one of the basic rules of <coughs> modern logic, um, that all things, you can, you can prove anything from a false premise. Um, that's that's uh, the logical structure of the world. So if you say something like, if 2 equals 3, then God exists, or if 2 equals 3, then God doesn't exist, um, that's a perfectly valid thing to say. Um, because 2 doesn't equal 3, um, and therefore there's no falsity, no contradiction, in saying if something false is true, then anything you want follows. Um, it has the same truth value, which is what, what validity and logic is about. It has the same truth value um, as any other um, true premise. That is to say, it's simply not false. Um, that's not true in poetry, though. All metaphors are false, and yet there's some metaphors that are better than others. You can't just, you can't produce random metaphors except in um, some um, ideologically um, um, tendentious and polemical poetical contexts. Um, you can't produce random metaphors um, and think that they're all created equal. All false statements are created equal in logic, but not all false statements are not created equal in poetry. Um, some metaphors are better than others. Uh, Harold Bloom again um, asks, says that, that poetry is all figurative language, all figurative language is false. Why do we like some poems better than others? Can be re-asks the question, why do we choose to believe some lies rather than others? Um, and his answer is, we choose those lies that help us to survive. Um, 
so there are lies we want to believe and lies we don't. That's a very grand statement that Bloom is making. Um, but just on the basic level of metaphor, you could say that some metaphors work because their falsity um, brings them closer or farther away, modulates a relationship with truth. That metaphors, um, a set of metaphors, will interact with true statements um, in a way that varies, sometimes going closer, sometimes going farther away. They're all logically false, but their relation to truth is something that can be modulated the way music is modulating sound. And um, so that's why so many poems are about um, giving you false statements, but false statements that come into interesting juxtapositions to true statements, as in the Frost poem. A rose is a rose, and was always a rose, but the theory now goes that an apple's a rose, etc. So Mont Blanc is very much about that. And here again, the, the, that becomes the question of the poem. The poem becomes a metaphor of its own subject, you could say, which is, what is its subject? The metaphor is a metaphor of the question, the metaphor becomes a question, becomes a metaphor for the question the poem asks, which is, what is this poem about? Is it about the mountain or is it about the mind? Which is the vehicle and which is the tenor? So the title is, is Gesture or Move One. Mont Blanc, lines written in the Vale of Chamonix. All right, Mont Blanc, it's about the mountain. Subtitle, lines written in the Vale of Chamonix. Well, actually, it's about writing some lines near the mountain. It's not a big deal. That may strike you as overreading, although I never overread. Um, but that may strike you as overreading. But yeah, it's mountain. No, actually, poem. Just notice that. A title and a subtitle. And the title is Name of Mountain. Subtitle is actually this poem, Lines Written in the Vale of Chamonix. Yeah. I mean, we didn't think it was the actual poem. I don't, I don't think anyone was we didn't think what was the actual. This was the actual poem, or the actual mountain, rather. No, <laughs> no, no, no. There was no confusion. We, we knew it was a poem already. Yeah, we did know it was a poem, but the question is, what's the subject of the poem? Is it the mountain or is it the poem? Okay. I mean, we said, is it the mind or is it the poem? But a way of re-asking that is to say, is it the mountain or is it the poem? Um, of course, we didn't think this was the mountain. Um, but the subject of the poem might be the fact that there are lines written about the mountain, not just that there is a mountain, but the very fact that there are lines written about the mountain. Yeah, Maya. Um, I mean, since we already know that it's a poem, because we can see that it's a poem, um, maybe saying, writing that it's a poem is saying something more. Because, like, he has to say that it's a mountain because we know it's not a mountain. But if he says that it's a poem, you're like, well, I already know it's a poem, so that might be more than that. The fact that it's a poem is perhaps Yeah, it's, un it's in a sense unnecessary. There are actually logical games like this. Um, I'm just going to tell you this, but don't even think about it. But imagine, this, this is a famous one. Don't think about it now, really, um, because you won't get anywhere thinking about it now, but it'll, it'll um, get you not thinking about this. Um, 
so there's a there's an island, and on this island, um, people either have blue eyes or brown eyes, and for the for the purposes of the bizarre logical world that this um, story is about, if you know the color, you, there are no mirrors or or bodies of water that you can see the colors of your own eyes. But there's a rule on this island that if you learn the color of your own eyes, you you have to kill yourself. Um, and um, one day, an anthropologist comes, and there are bun all the islanders are gathered around, and the anthropologist says, oh, I see that some of you have blue eyes and some of you have brown eyes. And all the people on the island look at each other in horror, and um, a little while later, they all kill themselves. Um, this is an island of perfectly logical people. They're perfect reasoners. Um, and so, on the one hand, they're not learning anything they didn't know. They already knew that some had blue eyes and some had brown eyes. No one knew the color of his or her own eyes, but everyone knew that there were only two eye colors on the island, um, and that the rule was you had to kill yourself if you found out your own, the color of your own eyes. Um, and then this anthropologist comes and just tells them what they already know. And then a few minutes later, first all the blue-eyed people kill themselves, and then all the bright, and then a then a time slice later. Let's just say it's a beat of one second, is what they do to reason. Um, each time they make a logical inference. So after a certain amount of time, all the blue-eyed people kill themselves, and then one second later, all the brown-eyed people kill themselves. Um, so this is an old logical puzzle, um, why that happens. But the point of the puzzle is, it looks like there isn't any more information being given to you when the anthropologist tells them what they already know. And yet, there is more information being given to them. Um, and that's what this is meant to bring out for you. Um, this is called a common knowledge game. Um, so the same thing is happening with the subtitle here. Lines written in the Vale of Chamonix, that's no more information is being given to you. Well, the fact that it's in the Vale of Chamonix is being given to you, but lines written, that's not giving you any more information. You already knew there were lines written. Except the fact that you're being informed of what you thought you already knew is another piece of information. So I think that's the uh, much more obscure and complicated way of what Maya just said. Um, all right, so we don't know if it's about the poem or if it's about the mountain. So we start reading it, and the first thing we read about is the everlasting universe of things. So we say, oh, good, now we understand it's about the mountain. And then we read the second line, and it turns out, no, it's actually about the mind. Um, and the first stanza, we're not sure if it's about the mountain or the mind, but then we get to the thus at the beginning of the second stanza, and what we see is... Oh, so the ravine of Arv, the dark, deep ravine with its many-colored, many-voiced veil, all of that looks just like the mind. So it's a metaphor or a simile for the mind. So now we know what this poem is about. It's about the mind. Except that he can't pull his mind away from the thing that's supposed to be describing it. So what he wants to say, if you were just schematizing this, if you imagine this poem is kind of outlined in five, um, five statements, is something like, um, the mind and the world interact. Um, it kind of looks just like this mountain outside. 
except it kind of looks just like this mountain outside turns into thus thou ravine of Arv, and he wants to get to thou dost lie, but instead he's stopped, he's blocked, he can't get beyond the mountain that he's trying to, you could say, dissolve into metaphor, make flow through his mind. He can't just turn it into, he can't just liquefy it so that it will flow through his mind. He sees the mountain and he's got to, he can't get, it's so high he can't get over it. So wide he can't get around it. So low he can't get under it. Thus thou ravine of Arv, dark deep ravine, thou, no, thou many-colored, many-voiced veil, thou dost look, no, over whose pines and crags and caverns sail fast cloud shadows and sunbeams, awful scene where power in likeness of the Arv comes down from the ice gulfs that gird his secret throne, bursting through these dark mountains like the flame of lightning through the tempest. That's not just a metaphor of the mind. That's not just a repetition of what he said in the first stanza, although that's what he's wanted it to be. It's like he says, yeah, so it's just like that mountain over, whoa. That's what's happening here. He wants to say it's just like, but the, the it's just like modulates into a whoa. Yeah? Isn't the way he's describing the mountain in of itself a function of his mind? Because he personifies it and he adds all these adjectives, and someone else looking at the same mountain might have like, seen it completely differently. Yeah. So isn't it in of itself already his mind? Yeah, and that's what he wants to say. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, as soon as he tries to want to say that, it's like the mountain says, "No way, buddy! You wouldn't. You couldn't have imagined me." But isn't he like saying it by saying it already? Like even in describing the mountain, isn't he already getting past the mountain because it's mitigated by? Yeah, but so the thing is when you go see Mont Blanc or the Grand Canyon or something that utterly blows you away, take a minute, if you can, to say to yourself, eh, it's only my mind doing it. And you won't be able to. That's the point. There's actually a drama here, which is what you're saying is um, easy to say if you're not standing next to the Grand Canyon or next to Mont Blanc. Um, it's theoretically easy. But the mountain is saying, I'm not about your theory. You're just a little human being, and I'm this mountain. And you can say, yeah, but in theory, yeah, 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 I know all that, but it's really all in my mind, so um, you're just empirical trash. Um, but it's really hard to say it, and to feel it, and to believe it when it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you, and like look around. So like it's constantly bigger than you can imagine or smaller than you can imagine. But um, could it be that it's something like that? Like kind of, I think that's sort of what you're saying, but a little different. Like as you, in looking at this and being thrown off is almost because he realizes he can't even describe his own mind. Right, and I think that's what's about to happen. But it turns out that if he can't describe his own mind, what teaches him that is the mountain. That is... You know, it's not so hard to feel that you can describe your own mind. 
when you're sitting in your room and you're thinking, okay, what I am is a perceiving being and what I perceive are these four walls and a window and um, I have proprioceptive perception of where my limbs are and really that's what um, the human mind is. Um, but the mountain isn't letting him produce that um, philosophical, psychological theory of the mind. So look what happens. It's just, um, there's, a, there's a moment in Anne and Cleopatra um, where Cle Antony is dead and Cleopatra says to someone she's talking to, I dreamt there was an Emperor Antony, oh such another sleep that I might have such another dream. And then she describes Antony and she says, you know, um, um, in, his, um, in his pockets um, he carried countries and kingdoms and um, um, they, and they fell, they fell from his pockets like plates. Um, he, was, he was a giant. He was amazing. Um, as for his bounty, there was no winter in it, and autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. She has this extraordinary description of Antony. And um, then she turns to the person she's talking to and says, do you think there was ever such a man as this I dreamed of? He answers, gentle madam, no. And she replies... You lie, tis past the size of dreaming. Nature wants forms to vie, nature wants stuff to vie strange forms with fancy. So she says, in nature just can't rival the human imagination. But to imagine an Antony were nature's peace against fancy condemning shadows quite. So what she's basically saying is this Antony was so amazing that no one could have imagined him. He had to exist because he couldn't have been imagined if he didn't exist. So in theory, anything that we can understand or know or perceive or sense you could give a solipsistic explanation of. It's just your hallucination. But what Cleopatra is saying is, actually, no, I couldn't have done that. I didn't have it within me to come up with that idea. And that's the experience that you will have at the Grand Canyon or at Mont Blanc or at some utterly sublime place in the world. It's that, no, I couldn't have done this if it didn't exist. It has to exist. It's so amazing that it has to be true. Not so amazing that it can't be true. It's so incredible that it commands credulity. It's so incredible that I couldn't have thought it up. No one could have. The only way anyone could have this idea is if the thing really existed. Now, you could say logically that makes no sense, and logically it doesn't make any sense. But it's an experience of nature, or of the world, or of the outside world, that overwhelms our attempts to put logical limits on things. So that's what Shelley's describing here. He's saying, so this mountain is just an image of my mind. The brain is wider than the sky. But then look what happens. So power and likeness of the Arv comes down from the ice gulfs and girded secret thrones, bursting through these dark mountains like the flame of lightning through the tempest. Thou dost lie, thy giant brood of pines around thee clinging, children of elder time. What an amazing phrase. 
So these giant pines in the mountain are children of elder time. We could say time before humans. Children of elder time in whose devotion the chainless winds still come and ever came to drink their odors and their mighty swinging to hear an old and solemn harmony. Um, notice just, just in passing the strange and Shellian image here, which is that the winds come to hear the swinging of the trees. Now, in reality, it's the winds that make the trees swing. Um, but we get this reversal. It's as though the trees are independent of the wind as the mountain is independent of the mind. And the winds come to hear that harmony of the tree branches that they themselves are, are making. Thine earthly rainbow stretched across the sweep of the ethereal waterfall whose veil robes some unsculptured image. The strange sleep which when the voices of the desert fail wraps all in its own deep eternity. Thy caverns echoing to the arv's commotion, a loud lone sound no other sound can tame. Thou art pervaded with that ceaseless motion. Thou art the path of that unresting sound. This is all addressed to the ravine that the river is going through. Dizzy ravine, and when I gaze on thee, I seem as in a trance sublime and strange to muse on my own separate fantasy, my own, my human mind. So I look at you, and it looks as though I'm now, he's trying to get control again, as though I'm looking at my own mind. It's as though you are an externalization of my own mind my own, my human mind, which passively now renders and receives fast influencings, holding an unremitting interchange with the clear universe of things around. So I look on you and I look at how the sounds go in and out and um, the commotion and the silence and um, the waterfalls and the rainbows and the fogs and so on. And that seems to me an image of the way that I look on you that is, through this unremitting interchange of what between me and what's outside of me. So now he's trying a kind of compromise. We both exist. My mind takes you in. And you exist, and my mind exists, and we go back and forth. And what's that like? Well, the clear universe of things around, it turns out to be one legion of wild thoughts. My thoughts belong to a legion of wild thoughts which also go outside of me. The whole universe is made up of thoughts, not only my thoughts, but thoughts. Let's try that. One legion of wild thoughts whose wandering wings now float above thy darkness. But it turns out now the thoughts are not the mountain itself. The thoughts float above the darkness of the mountain of the Arv and now rest where that or thou art no unbidden guest in the still cave of the witch poesy. So this legion of thoughts flies above the darkness of the mountain and of the ravine. And then that legion rests where it, in some cavern there, in the landscape, flies and rests the way flocks of birds do. He's obviously seeing flocks of eagles or um, some other sublime set of birds. Eagles don't flock, but seeing these birds flying above the mountain and then resting, it's all part of the natural scene. And 
he says, so there's the mountain, there's the legion of wild thoughts, including thoughts of the mountain, but there's the mountain itself. And then they sometimes float above thy darkness, and they sometimes rest where that legion, or where the mountain itself is no unbidden guest, where the mountain itself is, is, is welcomed. Where is that? In the still cave. So he sees a cave in this landscape, which of course there are. But what cave? The cave of the witch poesy. So that seems to be in the mind, because that's where poetry, poesy, the capacity for poesy exists. Which for Shelley is a good wor word. Um, which is um, um, a sorceress who cares about um, the beauty of the world. Um, one of his great poems is The Witch of Atlas, and the witch is absolutely his heroine in that poem. Yeah? It seems to me it kind of like inverts the metaphor. It's like what, in this question we have of what's the real subject. He yeah. kind of switched it on us for a second. Yeah. Because he, he's saying the natural world is an externalization of my mind. Right. And then he turns around and says, well, but if that's true, then all of this stuff is also contained within my mind. Yeah. So my mind is an internalization of the natural world. Right, exactly. Which, I don't know. Yeah. So but it seems like you end up in like an, you know, an unending loop if you, if you believe that. Some one thing has to be origin. Yeah, and so... I'm not, it doesn't seem like he's clear on which one is which. Not yet. That's right. Which one is the which? Yeah. No, not yet he isn't. Um, speaking of the unending loop, though, did you ever cut up that MOBA strip? Faith? Remember the Mobius strip we did? did where we took the sheet, the sheet of paper and flipped it? No, didn't we do that here? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Wasn't it you? No? Huh. Okay, I'm misremembering. Who was it? It was Crystal. Oh, was it Crystal? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so one legion of wild thoughts whose wandering is now flood above thy darkness and now rest where that or thou art no unbidden guest in the still cave of the witch poesy. Okay, so that seems to be in the mind. But what happens in the still cave of the witch poesy? Well, we all go around seeking among the shadows that pass by, those shadows that are ghosts of all things that are some shade of thee. So in the mind, there are all these shadows, and we seek some shade or shadow or ghost of this mountain, some phantom some faint image till the breast from which they fled recalls them thou art there so the mountain is still outside the legion of wild thoughts is still flying around um, we may stop thinking about the mountain the breast from which they fled re may recall this legion of wild thoughts that breast may be in the human mind, or it may be in the mountain itself, but the mountain is there the whole time. So now stanza three, he tries a different tactic to free himself of the power of the mountain. Some say that gleams of a remoter world visit the soul in sleep. So notice now he's saying, okay, look, when you're asleep, you can have even more amazing images, right? That's what some say. Some say that gleams of a remoter world visit the soul in sleep, that death is slumber, and that its shapes, the busy thoughts, outnumber of those who wake and live. So maybe 
This world in which I'm awake and seeing this mountain, that's nothing compared to the world of sleep. That would be a way, again, to make the mind master. The mountain is pretty amazing, but it doesn't compare to dreams, where I really have access to a remoter world, and dreams probably don't compare to death, where I would really transcend myself by going into myself. So that's what some say. Some say the gleams of a remoter world visit the soul in sleep, that death is slumber, and that its, that its shapes, that is the shapes of sleep or of death, um, an early poem of Shelley's begins with the lines, this is a poem called Queen Mab, um, begins with the lines, how wonderful is death, death and his pale brother sleep. Um, so that's Shelley at his, at his youngest and wildest. He's now much more in control of that idea. I mean, it, it, it's a very lurid poem, um, Queen Mab. He's now more in control of that idea. But death and sleep for him are related as things that transcend this life. That's what he wants to believe. So some say that gleams, and by some there he means me before I got here. Some say the gleams of a remoter world visit the soul in sleep, that death is slumber, and that its shapes, the busy thoughts outnumber of those who wake and live, I look on high. And guess what? Turns out that what I'm looking at wide awake seems to falsify that idea. Has some unknown omnipotence unfurled the veil of life and death? Is that what's happened? That now I'm actually seeing that remoter world that I thought we only had access to when we were alive through sleeping? Has some unknown omnipotence unfurled the veil of life and death? Or do I lie in dream? And does the mightier world of sleep spread far around and inaccessibly its circles? So he says, God, this is amazing. Am I asleep? But we know the answer to that question. Is he? No. Yeah. Um, actually, it's not that hard. It's just hard to write it. It's hard to write it. It's hard to read it after you wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to save it. Kublai Khan being the very famous example of that. Is that what you're about to say? Yeah. Um, everyone know about Kublai Khan? Um, it, Shelley probably has Kublai Khan in mind here. Is a loose word. Yeah. Um, well, he was feeling a little bit sick, and so he had to take a little laudanum. These things happen. Um, but do people know Kublai Khan and Xanadu to Kublai Khan? Yes, no? Sort of. Um, in Xanadu to Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea, is how it begins. Um, Shelley's clearly thinking of that. That is the, the ravine of Arv, the river going through this ravine, through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. That, um, Coleridge wrote that poem. He explains that he had to break it off, that he was feeling a little bit sick. He took laudanum, which is uh, apparently a very pleasant mixture of opium and alcohol, um, which was used for whenever anyone felt poorly for any reason in the <laughs> early 19th century. <laughs> he could always take laudanum, and he felt better. Yeah, yeah, which is which is what Coleridge did. Um, Coleridge was um, uh, famously addicted to opium, to laudanum, 
Um, but at any rate, he didn't, he didn't quite want to admit this for a while. Um, so I said, I was feeling sick. I took laudanum to feel a little bit better. Um, then I had this amazing dream, and the entire poem was in my head. Um, I woke up, and I wrote it down. I had the whole thing in my head. I wrote it down. Um, I wrote these lines when a visitor from Porlock came and, um, and having some business with me and detained me for about an hour. Um, and when this visitor left, I found that I'd forgotten the rest of it. Um, so it, he says, you know, it was just such a great poem. I wish I remembered it all, but now I don't. This is all that's left. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea that he's getting at and that Shelley's getting at, too, is that this poem is a way, it's not just something that's in your head. It's a way of tearing through and just into another world. Yeah. And that for a second, he saw this other world, and he tries to describe it as quickly as he can to get it down, and then he loses it, and it's gone. Yeah. And he never, and he never gets it back again. Yeah. The sad thing is that it's not just he thought of something cool and he wrote it down. It's that he's seeing something, something yeah. that's real in some in some capacity. Yeah. And then it's gone. Okay. Good. Except the mountain's still here. Yeah. He doesn't lose that. Yeah. Okay. So. He asks, do I lie and dream, and does the mightier world of sleep spread far around and inaccessibly it circles? For the very spirit fails. So that's the mind trying to grasp the mountain. But the spirit fails. What's the spirit like? It's like a homeless cloud, driven like a homeless cloud, from steep to steep that vanishes among the viewless gales. So my mind, looking at this, becomes like a cloud, just skittering in this immensity until it disappears. Far, far above, piercing the infinite sky. Amazing image that the sky is infinite. The brain is wider than the sky. And the sky is infinite, which makes the brain infinite. I mean, I'm taking um, Dickinson, who wrote later and probably has this poem in mind partly, um, as a um, background for the poem, but just her idea. But what does the mountain do? It's beyond infinity. It pierces the infinite sky. Infinity is easy. Mont Blanc is hard. So far, far above, piercing the infinite sky, Mont Blanc appears, still snowy and serene. Its subject mountains, their unearthly forms pile round it. Ice and rock, broad veils between of frozen floods, unfathomable deeps, blue as the overhanging heaven that spreads and that spread and wide among the accumulated steeps. A desert peopled by the storms alone. Save when the eagle brings some hunter's bone and the wolf tracks are there. How hideously its shapes are heaped around, rude, bare, and high, ghastly, and scarred, and riven. Is this the scene where the old earthquake demon taught her young ruin? So this is all pre and transcending the human. This is a world in which humans are nothing. This is a world in which, um, if, there, if it is personified at all, the figures here are some unknown omnipotence. And now the earthquake demon teaching her young ruin. Were these their toys, the, the brood of the earthquake demon? Did they create this mountain through just, just playing with their earthquakes? Were these their toys? Um, or did a sea of fire envelop once this silent snow? Was this once a volcano? None can reply. 
There's no answer to this. We don't know. The human mind can't take this in, can't command this. None can reply. All seems eternal now. And then he tries again. Well, the wilderness has a mysterious tongue, which teaches awful doubt or faith so mild, so solemn, so serene, that man may be, but for such faith. That is, all you need is that faith. It's a, that's a slightly hard phrase, but that's what it means. That man may be, if only we have this faith, but for such faith, with nature reconciled. So we can reconcile ourselves to nature if we realize that it's now serene, that there's no answer to this question. And what we should do is just either feel awful doubt, which is, oh no, the mountain is too great for me, it'll destroy me, or mild faith, serene like the mountain itself, and just reconcile with nature. So he says now, this silent mountain, he says now, is actually politically important because it teaches us what we should be like as human beings. Thou hast a voice. But before he said it's silent, now he claims thou hast a voice, great mountain, to repeal large codes of fraud and woe. That is all the laws that humans have erected to keep each other down. Thou hast a voice, great mountain, to repeal large codes of fraud and woe. Think about this politically. Think about how stupid politics seems when you go to a place like this, like people are worrying about the um, carried interest um, tax deduction. And look at this mountain. How can you be thinking about that? Um, that has to voice great mountain to repeal large codes of fraud and woe, not understood by all, but which the wise and great and good interpreter make felt or deeply feel. So OK, we human beings, we can look at this mountain. And yeah, it's totally amazing. But the wise and good and great can interpret it and make it felt and can feel it deeply themselves. And that's a good thing. So there is a way to take this mountain and be reconciled with it and feel faith and feel happy. And maybe the mind and the mountain can reconcile with each other. And that would be a good thing. Um, so he says at the end of stanza three, as we will see when we get to stanza four, that's not going to work either that attempt not to be overwhelmed by the mountain isn't going to work either. So more on Monday. Read the poem a few more times. Have a good weekend. And you should also read, um, we have one more week before we start um, Turn of the Screw. Um, so you should read the Browning poem, Child Roll Into the Dark Tower Came.